and I feel sorry for anyone who has to hear it, but design is everything. Like it's just anytime you make a change in the world that Not you it. think is going to change something else, it's design. And it could be simply that, you know, I, I want to see if someone will deviate from a path if I put a box in the road. I mean, technically that's design. It's kind of frivolous. It's, it's more of like a, a psychological study than anything. Right. But it's design because you intentionally change the world to see if it would have an impact on it. You are listening to the Spicy Chai Podcast. I'm your host, Maruk Imtiaz, and I'm on a journey to create inspiring, helpful, and meaningful content. This podcast is not going to showcase high-profile individuals spouting hollow advice like find your passion or hustle harder. Instead, my mission is to bring you the voices of people who are just a bit ahead of you, people you can relate to, and the people who will inspire you to put your own voice out there. So grab your cup of spicy chai and let's get this show started. Welcome to Spicy Chai. Our guest today is the podcast host of Bake Like a Chef. He's a former baker, cook, and pastry chef, and his show is all about diving deep into everything you need to learn and grow your professional pastry skills. And within the first few months of launching his podcast, he has gathered 100 downloads already. And so without further ado, I'm going to welcome Matt. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Happy to talk to you. Happy to have you here, too. So just to start things off, could you go a little bit about your story? Like what got you started a, what what got you started on the journey of becoming a baker? And then what propelled you to start sharing that journey online? Oh, so, uh, you know, I go over this, I believe in the first episode, um, but I'm I'm always happy to talk about it. It's something that I had a burning desire to do. And I, I don't know if it was simply that I've always been, uh, you know, a pastry chef, or if I just got a lot of positive reinforcement when I was a, a kid, there were there were two things I dug into deeply. Well, three things I dug into deeply when I was a kid, computers, cooking and baking, and then just being outdoors and, and doing things outdoors. And the the computers and baking came together in a really odd way. I remember my grandmother would always give me recipes, even at a young age. I mean, I started cooking when I was 10. Oh, wow. Um, things that my family never thought to cook. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember one day because it was something my grandmother and I had in common. And this is my, my dad's mother. She handed me a recipe written on a punch card, the computer programming punch cards. Cause my dad, when he was getting his degree in accounting, he had to program computers because he was of that age right. on punch cards. And I had, and I had these recipes written on old punch cards. Um, what is a punch card? Like I, I, I haven't even heard of that. Oh, so early uh, computers, you would write programs by punching holes in paper cards and you'd keep them in an order and stack. And then you would run your program by feeding it through a machine. And there are all sorts of jokes about someone, (laughs) you know, going to the computer with their stack and then dropping it and their program's broken. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But um, from from there, um, it was just a continual. uh, It was was a piece of continual growth. I I was. I was turning into this person through what I think is what I call the food revolution. This is when food TV blew up. So I was heading in that direction. And then I saw people on television doing the thing that I love doing. I couldn't go do it as a degree. Um, I just could not afford it. There was no way to do that. I worked in kitchens from a relatively young age. And then 
as um, time passed, it was just something that even after, you know, getting a degree and getting into my first handful of jobs, I thought, you know what, I should really pursue this because I'm going to, you know, be 50, 60 one day and regret not having done it. So your jobs um, so, weren't in the, the baking field, you're saying? No, I, okay. I did a lot of cooking, okay, um, you did. but it okay. was restaurant cooking. I was cooking at bowling alleys and right. chain restaurants and, and right. things of that nature. I did some, you know, work at a deli and an ice cream shop, pizza right. place, you know, you name it. I've, I probably cooked there. Yeah. Um, but I thought there was a, an opportunity to take it to a, another level. And it is odd in a, in a job interview a couple of years ago as a contractor, I had a developer look at me and he said, pastry chef. Well, that's kind of like design, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, it is. It's design. It's, it's yeah. the same thing. It's like industrial design, but your, your materials fall apart quickly if you don't pay attention. <laughs> to them. Um, right. Yeah. But I, going down that, well, and so at that point I made that decision, right? I was like, I, I need to do this. I have to do this. And I went and did the training. Um, and it was about 10 years after I finished the training. So I worked as a pastry chef afterwards. I did a, a few stints with some really great chefs. Um, mm-hmm. I did some catering work. I was, uh, I, I moved into the position of, of being a chef. You know, I, I, I managed a kitchen. I worried about cost. I dealt with employees, all of that stuff. That's not right. about cooking that makes you chef. Right. Um, and then, um, from there, I, I ran into an impasse and this is part of what inspired me. You can't, it's hard to afford culinary training. Right. Being paid as a, as a cook. It's, it's, it's impossible. Okay. You get paid max, at least at the time it was 12 to 15 bucks an hour and you have to pay off effectively a college tuition. Yeah. Wow. And so yeah. I was sitting there about six years ago and um, I was sitting working on some instructional design for um, aircraft for uh, uh, aircraft instructors, CFIs, they would renew um, their, their certification to teach uh, how to fly. And, um, and I was doing instructional design and I thought, why am I not doing this to help chefs? Like I, I should, I need right. to do this. There's yeah. a, there is a, you know, a strong need for it in the world. And there's no reason for someone to have to go and take on a lifetime worth of debt in order to become a pastry chef. It just does not make any sense at all. Right. Um, and, and I think subsequently a lot of culinary schools ran into to challenges with that lawsuits and stuff because right. yeah, it's kind of an unfair game unless, you know, I had a, I had someone in my class who is her husband was in the, um, the financial space and they had a house in Maui and a house in Los Angeles and she was just doing it for fun. Like I, I totally get right. that. Right. If you want to drop that money, getting that education <laughs> and you have that disposable income, go for it. It's a really wonderful thing to do. It's fun. You learn a lot. You think differently, but yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that is my complete story. Yeah. I, I gave you a lot there. No, that, no, that's, that's perfect. And that's, that's amazing because you've always had this burning desire to be a chef. You actually did go through the training and yeah then you realize you want to pivot a little bit. You went to industrial design and then you tried marrying both of them. Or is that right? Or is that no? It's you. I designed for applications, you know, is that, okay. uh, yeah. Websites, applications. It's now called user experience. Oh, that's so cool. So you, so you actually, did you, did you go to school for that too then? Um, after I was, yes, I did. I actually had my master's in, in that field. That's incredible. So you like, yeah. you've worked as a chef. Yes. Did your master's in user experience industrial design, and now you're trying to marry them both? Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so I'm just yeah, trying to break yeah. it down I mean, in like very simple terms. 
Well, that's the challenge. Like, and, yeah. I, and this, is, this is a total designer thing to say. Right. Like, and, 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 I, and, and, I, and I feel sorry for you simply that, you know, I, I want to see if someone will deviate from a path if I put a box in the road. I mean, technically that's design. It's kind of frivolous. It's, it's more of like a, a psychological study than anything. Right. But it's designed because you intentionally change the world to see if it would have an impact on the world. And, and that's why I will, I will say all day long that everything's designed. Anytime you make a conscious decision to change something, it's designed. But we both can agree that you actually studied a bit more to learn more about how to apply that in your current oh, role. Yeah. Yes. Oh, so, yeah, okay. Absolutely. Perfect. So you worked as a chef and you learned a bit more about industrial design. And then you yeah. were like, all right, we could maybe work towards putting that industrial design knowledge mm-hmm. to what you already love doing because you wanted to do some more of cooking and like being a chef. And, and I totally get that it's really unfair going to school. And there's a lot, I guess being chef is just one of those professions. There's so many other professions out there, uh, just out of top of mind, social work. Like, you know, you go to school, you spend so much money, but your first job or your first subsequent jobs, yes. you're not getting much back. Um, yeah. And it, it's very frustrating. And you're right, it's, it's so unfair. But like, what were some of the challenges that you dealt with when you're like, all right, I'm, I'm a chef. I have, I have the knowledge. I have the training right? And now you have this industrial design knowledge and training as well. What were some of the challenges when you were like, all right, I want to start putting content out there? It was finding time. You know, I, I, had, I had loans from school and I had to pay the bills and mm-hmm. had some of the other burdens of life. You know, everything sort of brings you an impasse at some point. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, we're working on a project together. And he said to me, Matt, I have so many things that I care and love about. And I feel like I'm not doing any of them well. And, um, and it was a really great encapsulation of just that idea of how do I, how do I make room for something? You know, how do, how do I make room and really give it the attention it deserves? And I mean, you can appreciate as I think we've talked enough. And right. even now that you yeah. know that I'm a designer and pastry chef, I'm probably strung a little differently. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a little bit of perfectionism in there. <laughs> I see that. Yes. Yes. And so... That- it, you know, it, you could you could say it's one of those two things. I mean, those are for me those are uh, opposite sides of the same coin. Like, do I have enough time, or am I too much of a perfectionist? Right. If I'm, if I'm too much of a perfectionist, perfectionist, I'm going to run out of time. And if I, yeah. So. <laughs> so, so how have you dealt with that? Like, I mean, the fact that you have a podcast out, um, quite a few episodes, hundred plus downloads, uh, while managing again paying the bills, doing all the other stuff. How? I mean, I know it's it's a journey, but how have you dealt with all of that? I think it's simply recognizing uh, that I'm not going to provide any value to the world if I don't provide anything, that I I need to get something out there. And um, and even some of it is simply from from design training, that I can think about something all day long and I'm not going to get anywhere. But if I take what's in my mind right now and I externalize it, I'll be able to look at it differently. And I can do that a hundred times a day. Right. So instead of thinking about the perfect word to write down, I write down the word I have and I look at it and I say, ah, it's good enough. Right. And then move forward. And when it's not good enough, I change it, but it's never, then the question is never, is it perfect? And so it helps push things forward. So the big barrier for me, and you hear this in uh, Pat Flynn's, 
story, you hear it in everyone's story. The first episode you record, you record it, you listen to it, you record it, you listen to it, you record it, you listen to it. <laughs> I've gone and through somehow, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and for me, everyone got worse. <laughs> yeah, same. I was like, oh, I was so natural in my first one. And somehow second one, I'm sounding fake because I'm like, oh, I kind of already know what I'm saying, but I don't really know what I'm saying. And the third one was just like full of ums and the ahs and the <laughs> Yeah, so I totally, totally, totally can relate that and relate to that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, but it, but there's a point where you stop, and I think with the first episode for me, I hit a point where I could I could see all of my muscles tensing as I was listening to each subsequent episode. Right, I could mm. I could hear the perfectionist coming out, and I could see the perfectionist. That's a really good out. point. And then put it down for a bit and said, you know what, let's record the second episode. And then, okay, that's a little bit better. Let's record the, th- the third one and the fourth one. And, oh, wait, I have this idea that could go in between three and four. Let me record that five-minute segment. Uh, and getting in the habit of simply talking, something I've never been, been great at. I, my dad likes to tell a story. <laughs> when I was in 10th grade, or no, when I was 10 years old, when I was in fifth grade, okay. um, I did not like to get up on stage. And so there was a, one of those present, you know, um, what are they called? Plays or presentations or whatever they were, where everyone had to get up on stage and dance and sing. And I was so adamant to not put the costume on, but they forced me on stage to not feel like I would stand out on stage in front of everybody. I was the only kid not dressed up <laughs> on stage singing and dancing. That. So there's always been but, this fear of like being yeah. out to the world, you know, and there's actually a few very profound things you said. Um, you said the question shouldn't be, is this perfect? The question yeah. should be, is it good enough? Um, and then the second one was start now and from the concept, start now, make it better later. Cause you can always make it better. Um, yeah. and you just talked about how you really, you were always really scared of going on stages. So talk me through like how you went from, Again, I do sometimes will see that perfectionist in you and obviously it comes, comes and goes. We know we're always on a journey and it's always going to get better. But how did you go from, okay, man, I have to do this perfectly. I'm so scared of talking to this person who's still putting stuff out there. They might not be fully ha- happy with it, but they're still putting that out there. Can you break that down a bit? I think there's there are two big elements to it. Some of it is just releasing control, just recognizing that um, I can't help anybody. I can't provide any information to anybody if I don't put any out there. You know, if I were to put it in a different context, you know, if you saw a train coming and you saw someone with their shoelaces stuck in the track and they were going to be hit by the train, would you go help them even if it was imperfect? Or would you say, ah, let me think about the perfect way to help this person. And if I can't, oh, too bad. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And I think it started to, I started to frame the the thoughts in terms of you know i feel there's value in what i have to say and not just the fact that i'm saying it but i think there, there's actually value in the information i'm providing because there are things that were it took a while for me to learn it took a lot of long hard hours for me to learn this and if i can frame it in that way it'll help someone instantly and they're, they're never going to get it in their hands if I don't. It's it's one of the the things that I struggle with in life, and, and I'm not going to give out uh, my email address for this reason. Is that if I see someone who's struggling, I want to help them. Right. It's it's one of the core things I do. It's like if you go back to everything I I love doing, it's really just to help people get some sort of experience or some sort of help, and and I will, I will do anything. I, there was a someone struggling. They just lost their their husband in a freak accident and they're taking over their husband's business. And I looked and I saw that 
all of their husband's information was all over the website. Their hours were wrong. And I said, listen, I'm happy to help you out. Just let me know. I have a few pro bono clients, you know, I, but I, I want you to get through this. And it's just, it's just what I do. And I really channel that person, that mm -hmm. side of me. And it really helps get past the perfectionism because when you get to that level of assistance and that level of sort of altruistic, you know, internal mechanisms, you get past the perfectionism because the perfectionism doesn't matter anymore. You know, that voice inside your head, you're driving down the road and you see someone with a flat tire. I don't know about you, but there's always a part of me that says, stop and help that person. Right. Even if I'm late for something, it's, it's just in me. And I don't always do it. I'm, I'm going to be frankly honest. It, right. I, it's, you're, you're, there's always the other side that says, well, what if they're a serial killer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was say, I was, that was my first thought when you said that. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I would do that as a female, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it's, it's just in me. And I think it's channeling that, that part. And then also sort of relinquishing control over life. And then some of it has to do with my age. I've gotten to a point where I've said, you know what? All this stuff that I've been afraid of doesn't matter so much. <laughs> right. That's, yeah, yeah. that's very interesting that you say that, like all the stuff that I'm afraid of doesn't matter so much. And you spoke about mm -hmm. releasing control and reframing. Mm -hmm. When you did start your podcast and you released it in September-ish, mm -hmm. right? Uh, last year, uh, September 2020, uh, for everyone listening, what were some of the fears that you were going through? This is going to sound really strange, but it was more that someone I knew would view it and somehow I would be exposed in some negative way. And I, I frame that very vaguely. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> okay. Because it's not specific. I, I, and I think that's part of it, you know, that when you, when you hear people tell you that your actions, your actions matter, but they, your, your acute actions sometimes don't matter. I would say that most of your actions don't matter, but there are a few that really do matter. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, there are yeah, certain, yeah. Some that are irreversible. Most of them are not permanent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in, for someone who is focused on sort of the acute perfection of something, most of those fears really don't have any meaning in the world. They do to you. And, and they're important for that reason, because they're a window into your concerns and your feelings and your your, your beliefs, your moral code, what have you, right? They, right. they help provide insight into that. You know, when it, when it comes down to it, you just test those boundaries, right? You take those risks. You say, you ask that question that you just asked to me, like, what really is the impact of this? And, and maybe you talk about fear setting, right? You say, well, right. what are the bad things that could happen? What are the positive outcomes? Can I mitigate any of these negative things? Um, fear setting, I, I... Hello, friends. So this is Background Maruk. And I just wanted to say that our friend Matt here, he's mentioned fear setting. Fear setting is a concept that was originally, or no, actually, I don't know if it was originally designed by Tim Ferriss, but he's uh, the one that talks about a lot in his book, Tools of Titans. And, you know, since I love you so much, I do want to go through it in a bit more detail. So fear setting is an exercise that you do when you're really scared of something or when something is really bothering you or when you don't know if you take the risk or not. The way it works is you ask yourself around seven questions and these are the seven questions. And I am reading this off the book. So this is from Tools of Titans and the section is called My Favorite Thought Exercise, Fear Setting. So number one is define your nightmare, the absolute worst that could happen if you did what you are considering. What doubts, fears, and what ifs pop up as 
you consider the big change you can or need to make. Envision them in painstaking detail. Would it be the end of your life? Would it be the permanent impact, if any? And how do you rate them on a scale of 1 to 10? Then ask yourself, are these things really permanent? Number two, what steps could you take to repair the damage or get things back on the upswing, even if temporary? Chances are it's easier than you can imagine. How could you get things back under control? Number three, were the outcomes or benefits both temporary and permanent of more probable scenarios? Now that you've defined the nightmare, what are the more probable or definite positive outcomes, whether internal, confidence, self-esteem, etc., or external? What would the impact of these more likely outcomes be on a scale of 1 to 10? Number four, if you were fired from your job today, what would you do to get things under financial control? Imagine the scenario run through questions 1 to 3 above. Number five, what are you putting off out of fear? Usually what we most fear doing is what we most need to do. That phone call, that conversation. Define the worst case, accept it and do it. Number six, what is it costing you financially, emotionally, physically to postpone action? So it's not what's costing you to do it, but actually what is it costing you to postpone action? And number seven, what are you waiting for? If you cannot answer this without resorting to the BS concept of good timing, the answer is simple. You're afraid. So just do it. I'll also have this in the show notes so you can see it from there. But you know, now back to the interview. Just asked to me, like, what really is the impact of this? And, and maybe you talk about fear setting, right? You say, well, right. what are the bad things that could happen? What are the positive outcomes? Can I mitigate any of these negative things? Um, fear setting, I, I pulled from, from Tim Ferriss's Earth, yes. body Tools of work. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and it just came down to the fact that a lot of those fears were irrational. Um, or if they still, if they continued to be fears, if, if they felt rational to me, they didn't outweigh the value that I could provide to someone else going back to that sort of altruistic side, you know? Right. And it, and it really was a conscious way of looking at the world that way. Now there are a lot of people who put that message in my head and, and I actively sought these people out, you know, Pat Flynn, Amy Porterfield, Tim Ferriss, Jerry Seinfeld, I mentioned the other day, right. um, Everyone who has done anything extraordinary um, has gotten past this. And it's, it's always the same thing, at least in my eyes. It's always the, the benefits outweighed the risk. And I just had to find a way of getting to framing that, that balance in a way that made sense to me. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I think I love that you bring up the people who influence you, Pat Flynn, Tim Ferriss, Jerry Seinfeld. And you're right it's not that they didn't have these fears. They actually talk about it. They talk about all the fears that like literally sometimes I'm looking at their interviews. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going through this, but they got past it. And I love the way that you mentioned how you got past it is by reframing. Every time a fear comes up, you reframe it to, well, I can't add value until I put something out there, you know, be it good value, bad value. There's going to be zero value until something is out there. Even getting to that reframing, would you say the most that happened mostly because you were, you had the right voices in your head, like the right influencers that you were listening to, or was it like um, certain mentors? Like where was the combination? What helped you get to this stage where you're like, you know what? I have the fears. I can feel the fears and I will do it anyway. Time to wrap up part one. So if you want to listen to part two, go to episode 16 that you will see in the show notes. And if you've been listening to this show and think it's about time that you start your own podcast and get your voice out there, DM me the word podcast and let's chat and let me see if I can help you with some resources. I'd love to help you out. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, you got this beautiful. 
Hey you, thanks for listening to Spicy Chai. I really appreciate it. And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast, The Obvious. And if you want to learn more, head over to marukimthias.com. And until next time, my friend, hit the record button or, you know, the publish. Lots of love from your favorite. You got this, beautiful. <laughs>